Okay, here we go. James chapter 1. What we want to do is we want to be looking around verse 22 and following. Um, James is talking about a number of different things in his letter. James was one of the very first um, books of the New Testament that were written. So at the time that James was written, there was no Romans, there was no Ephesians, there was no Revelation, there was nothing else. This was one of the very first pieces of the New Testament canon. And he's writing to brothers, he's writing to Christians, and he's informing them of how they should be conducting themselves as members of the body of Christ. I'm going to read verses 22 and following. And what I want to do is apply this to our disciplines. So let's go ahead and look at our disciplines. First, we just want to remind ourselves of this. And I'm not teaching this to, to inform anybody. We've been looking at these for nine months. I know that you guys know this, but there is something good about reading these things and reminding ourselves of these proofs so that we can carry them with us back into our week, back into our homes, back into our jobs, and we can use these principles to guide us in those things. Uh, discipline one is the heart. The faithful leader shepherds its heart worshipfully towards God through the word of God. So we worship God through his word, and we do that faithfully. That's the most important thing. We, we start there because that is where everything begins. That's the foundation of any relationship that we have is, is what is inside of our heart. We take the fruit of our heart shepherding into our home. The faithful leader is concerned for those in his home, and he shepherds them toward God with the word of God. So when the man has shepherded his own heart, he's well positioned to do that very same thing with everybody that God has put in his home, in his household. So whether you're a son, whether you're a father, whether you are a roommate, whatever you are, you have a role in all of this. It starts with caring for your heart, and then it be, continues with uh, functioning rightly in the role that God has given you in your home. A well-functioning home, the natural place you go with a well-functioning home is this church. And that's why the, the third discipline is ministry. You take the fruit of a well-functioning home into the church. The faithful leader with a heart and home oriented toward God and his word steps into the Grace Bible Church family to shepherd others toward God with the word of God. Uh, the, the reason why the family comes before the ministry here is because we have life that we share with one another here at church. We come, we meet people, we get to know people, and somehow our lives come up against one another and we begin to share our lives. And we want to show the fruit of our home shepherding in, in our church so that when we meet someone here at church, we can bring them into our lives, into our families, and show them what it looks like to be walking with Christ and what it looks like to be functioning well. So after the ministry, the next thing are the deacon qualifications and the elder qualifications. And we, we put those in front of us, the elder qualifications last week. Next year, we'll be teaching on the deacon qualifications. The faithful leader prayerfully pursues the character of a qualified deacon or elder in the church, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. There are some other passages as well that speak about leadership in the church. Uh, 1 Peter 5 is a good place, and the end of 2 Timothy chapter 2 as well. But a man who has been running well in his own heart, he's been running well in his home, he's serving well and functioning well in this church, um, he begins to... He, he is all of those things because he's reading his Bible. He's reading his Bible and he's becoming the kind of man that God has for him to be. And that man just becomes a very noticeable man. Uh, his conversations are healthy. His service is genuine. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. And that man is well qualified to begin serving in the church. And our fifth discipline is the hermeneutic. 
The faithful leader disciplines himself to carefully interpret God's word to discover what God meant by what God said in his word. So all of these things have to do with the word. It starts with your own heart shepherding and it flows all the way into just how you read the word accurately and carefully. Let's talk about James chapter 1. Today I want to focus on what we want to be doing with our hearts so that when we're done reading our Bibles, uh, we are going to be faithful with what we read. James chapter 1, we're going to start with verse 22. But become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For anyone is a hearer of the word and, sorry, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man will be blessed in what he does. So the, the main point of interest here that James is addressing is when you're looking at God's word, we want to engage with God's word, and then we want to carry the truth of that word with ourselves in the rest of the, the day that the Lord has for us. And the way that that is most meaningfully done and most consistently done is to use self-control while you're reading your Bibles. The more carefully and self-controlled manner you read your Bible, the easier it will be to carry that truth with you throughout the day. So one of the things I want to do is just put in front of you this morning when you are reading your Bibles, at whatever time in the day it is, and you've prepared your heart well with confession and thanksgiving and praise and worship, adoration of the Lord, you begin reading your Bible, um, beg the Lord to give you the eyes to see what it is that he has there in front of you so that you can comprehend it rightly, apply it to your own heart, and take that transformed heart into the rest of your day. So the, the emphasis here is more on... Um, not so much on preparation for the time reading your word, reading your Bibles, but in asking the Lord to help you and grant you his grace so that when you've, once you've read your Bibles and you've understood what it means, that he will give you the, the wisdom and the grace to apply the truth that you've been reading to your life that day. I love the promise that's at the end of this passage. Um, he says, But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, so he hears it, he makes it a part of his, his thought process, he makes it a part of his affections, and he abides by it. He's behind this, he's running hard for this because he loves it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. So here's God's promise to us. Uh, our life will be full of blessing, and I, I don't mean that in terms of acquiring things, I just mean that in terms of a thickness and a richness and a, a soundness of our relationship with the Lord um, in whatever it is that we do. So make this part of your prayer life. Lord, as, I, as I'm reading my Bible, grant me the wisdom to be able to retain what it is that you put in front of me. Grant me the wisdom to be able to understand it and apply it to my heart so that I can carry it with me and be blessed in what I do this day. This is the first time we're teaching this lesson in build, but hopefully it will still be a, a benefit to you, even if it may not quite be what it will, one day will be. Um, but I'm just excited to be able to talk to you all about this. And was originally asked by the by the the ladies of Wellspring to come in and to talk on biblical counseling, and. Uh, 
sort of uh, thought, you know, this might be something that would be helpful to, to the group of men in build as we particularly think of D2 and D3 as we care well for our own hearts and then begin to think through how do we step into the lives of those in the church. And so what, I, what we talked through this morning will primarily be in relationship to caring for one another in the body of Christ. There's a lot of areas we can talk about biblical counseling. We could be talking about counseling and you're counseling an unbeliever. Uh, what we're, what we're going to focus today is how do we care for those who are believers in the body? Um, and I titled today's message, Soul Care in the Church. And why soul care? Well, when you hear the term biblical counseling, you might have a number of things that pop into your mind that you begin to think of um, that may not quite be what we mean by biblical counseling, and it may not quite be what we see with the scriptures paint the picture of the, the duty to care for souls in the body of Christ. They may not be the same thing. So just some statistics um, as we look outside of the world, according to a 2023 study, 55% of adults ages 18 to 43 have gone to therapy or are currently going to therapy. That was 2023. 55% are seeing a therapist of some kind or have done so in their life. 20% of them currently in therapy, 40% plan to go in 2024. Surprisingly, about a quarter of those say, actually, I expect to remain in therapy forever. So they don't expect they don't expect it to be successful. Or maybe they have different desires and reasons they're going to therapy. Maybe therapy for them is their social connection. Uh, maybe it's a badge of honor. I'm in therapy. We actually see that more and more today. Uh, maybe they just don't expect to ever be able to get over their problems. And there might be, there's going to be some reasons for that if they're without Christ. Uh, interestingly, the top reason in the survey given for people not going to therapy wasn't because they didn't think they need it, but because it was just too expensive to afford. The top reasons that adults in this age seek therapy, according to the survey, is anxiety, depression, and stress. I think things that we probably hear in our own circles. And so why are people seeking therapy? Again, there might be a number of reasons, but at least some of them are looking for help to manage their problems or to change their behavior. So you so that enter therapies like cognitive behavior therapy. Right? These behavior-driven approaches. And you have a lot of notes in front of you. We won't cover everything. Um, and so we'll, you, hopefully those will be a good resource to you later. I also have a lot of the verses that we'll be hitting on that are actually already pre-printed in your notes so that we're not turning back and forth to, to all of them. Um, but so hope, don't be surprised if we do skip over sections of those notes. But we're looking at letter, letter B, uh, behavior-driven approaches under the introduction. And while there are a lot of different models of therapy today, uh, Cognitive behavior therapy, at least in the United States, has really become sort of the go-to intervention for medical or mental disorders in the U.S. Uh, being trained and competent in CBT is actually one of the accreditation criteria for all psychiatry residency programs in the U.S. It's actually so popular that psychiatry practice guidelines for almost every medical 
mental disorder includes CBT as a first-line therapy. It is, it, it's popular, and it's even popular among Christians who believe that they might be able to integrate some of the principles of CBT into a Christian worldview. Why, you know, many have, have actual the behavioral interventions that CBT looks like, looks at, are, look very similar at first glance to biblical strategies that Christians use to put off sinful behavior. CBT emphasizes identifying faulty core beliefs and irrational thinking, and then confronting them with truth statements, and then altering our behavior based upon changing our thinking. And that, and that can sound biblical, right? right? Paul instructed us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So that sounds biblical. While it looks similar on its surface, CBT and the biblical process of change are very different. And at its core, CBT denies the spiritual component of humanity. Right? Humanity consists of a body and a soul, the material and the immaterial. And CBT often sees us as merely physical beings whose emotions can be manipulated through training or intervention. There actually is really no place for C in CBT for the reality of the heart as Scripture views it. Cognitive behavior therapy tells us that what comes out of us proceeds from our habits and our conditioning. Scripture tells us that what comes out of us proceeds from our hearts, right? Matthew 15, 18. Our problem is not just conditioned behavior, but sin. We sin by nature and we sin by choice. These are not just, we're human. We don't always do what we, we, we think we should. But no, these are actually acts of rebellion against a holy God. And our only solution to those is not a change in our behavior, but a change in who we are at the heart level. We need the gospel to change at the heart level. CBT's goal in change is actually aiming at what is healthy or normal, and the counselor and the counselee or the therapist kind of establish an aim of what, what, what do we want the outcome of this to be? But God's goal is different. There is a precise aim, and that is, first, reconciliation to Christ. And then having been reconciled, he is in the process of transforming us more and more into a specific standard, the image of Christ. He is our aim. He is the standard. Uh, one typo in your notes, the next passage is First Thessalonians 4.3, not 4.13. 413 is a good passage to go to if you want to learn about the rapture, but this is the will of God, your sanctification, verse 3. God's will is that we would actually be sanctified, we'd be made holy, we would actually be made and conformed into the image of Christ. So why do we why do we get duped as believers by things like CBT or behavior modification? It's because it's really easy for us to equate a change in behavior with true sanctification. It can be really appealing to focus on the practical, what's going to help me solve this problem, common sense solutions that help me, instead of actually the solutions that help me prioritize my relationship with Christ. And that help me dig out 
the hard, embedded, heart-level, deep roots of sin. It's hard work. But true Christ-likeness, true sanctification is not just behavior modification, but we aim at change at the heart level that then flows out of the heart into godly, Christ-like behavior for the glory of God. So in, in talking about how people change, CBT often just misses the immaterial part of man. Uh, if we are to help others change, we actually need to care for their heart, their soul, these overlapping terms for the inter immaterial part of man. And, and so when we talk at Grace Bible Church about intentionally speaking truth into the life of another believer, with the goal of helping them change at the heart level for the glory of God, for the goal of Christ, with the goal of Christ's likeness, we talk about biblical counseling. Believers counsel one another. And we are actually a biblical counseling training center for ACBC, the, Americans, or the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. We love biblical counseling. That's what we're talking about today. But there can also be some drawbacks by just using the term biblical counseling that we may not all understand that to mean what we intend for it to mean if we're not careful. And it could lead us to some wrong ideas. So I just want to look at just some possible drawbacks to that. Maybe some things that might come into your mind when you hear about biblical counseling. First of all, not everything that claims to be biblical counseling is biblical counseling. Um, you actually see a lot of what we talked about, these attempts to integrate psychology, psychotherapy, uh, therapy model, behavior modification with biblical truth. Usually that goes under the banner of Christian counseling as opposed to biblical counseling, but we even see that with some who claim to be biblical counselors. So we just need to be watchful for that. But another term to the drawback to the term biblical counseling, that it can be really easy for us as Christians to unwittingly import ideas from the therapy model as the biblical counseling model. Is biblical counseling just taking these the counseling model, the therapy model, and then just adding scripture to it? Well, if that's what we think of when we think of biblical counseling, then we're not going to be thinking about the biblical process of soul care in the church right. Uh, there, there's a number of phenomena that have actually happened in the biblical counseling movement um, that maybe lead to some of some what can be a misconception of what this is, what counseling is in the church. One of them is the formalization of counseling. When you think of counseling... It's easy to think of, hey, I have, I've identified that I have a problem. I need to call somebody. I need to request a formal appointment, a meeting. We meet. Might be, maybe there's a desk in front of us. One person has the answers. One person has the problem. So we, we look. It can be easy for us to think of, even just by the term counseling, that we're talking about some formal setting. Counseling can also have be an identity for some. And just as the people in the world often talk about being in therapy, and they take that as their badge, their identity, we can see the same thing in the church. It, we may be bearing, there might be some that would bear being in counseling as sort of their identity, their badge. It might be their access to the leaders of the church. It might be what they look to as their, in their own heart, as their justification for not actually changing. How often do we read about a Christian leader 
of some kind that has been disgraced in public sin. And we, and we see the articles come out. They're not always the most helpful articles. But we often see those leaders talk about, well, they're now in counseling. They're, 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 foc- they're going to focus on healing. But we don't see often the focus of the need for repentance. The need to put off those sins. The need to actually be like Christ. Now, I think sometimes counseling itself is considered the remedy rather than the Christ-likeness. So we can look at counseling as just this identity. We can also, it can also be stigmatized. Oh, they're in counseling. We, we create three classes of people. There's the, there's the counselors, and then there's the, those that are in counseling, and then there's those that are not in counseling. That's the group I want to be in, right? I don't need help. My issues, my sins are not big enough. I don't need counseling. Counseling is for those really big sins. And so we, maybe we avoid it. And the last year, the professionalization of the counselor and the therapy model is that there's this credentialed, professional person who has the answers. If you want help, you go to the person with the credential. Well, in the church, we can do the same thing. Hey, if I, if I need help, I go to the person with the credential. Maybe it's, I need a certified counselor. There's not one in this church. Let me go find someone at another church. Or it might just be, oh, I, I need to talk to the pastor. That, that, that's what I need. Um, you might. There might be some situations where that is needed, but there are others in the church that would be appropriate to help with those problems. We, but we can easily replace the secular therapist with the biblical counselor or with the pastor as the method for seeking change. Do I know someone that needs counseling? I'll contact a counselor. I'll refer them to a counselor. I'll refer them to the pastor. Do I need counseling? I'll... That's where I'll go. I'll go to the pastor. If I know somebody else that needs counseling, I'm certainly not qualified to help, so let me help connect you to somebody who is. Should that be our mindset in the church? Can we as believers afford to just defer soul care, counseling to the pastors. I think sometimes just even this use of this term can help us. If we're adopting some of these ideas from the secular counseling model, we can unwittingly incorporate them into our idea of what that is and have a wrong just understanding of what we're after in that and then whose job and whose role soul care actually is. So I'm talking about today, instead of just biblical counseling, I'm talking about soul care in the church and particularly your role in soul care in the church. And I have no attention to dislodge the term biblical counseling from your vocabulary or from our church's vocabulary. But for today, I just want to think about it in terms of soul care and how that might help each and every one of us think about our role in that in the church. And so letter D, I want to think about how we've already been equipped for this work the work of soul care, and if you've been at Grace Bible Church for any length of time, particularly if you've been in build. Maybe this is your first year in build, but I see a lot of familiar faces who have been in build multiple years. You might think, oh, if I'm going to be one who might counsel, 
or provide soul care. I need to go and seek, I need to go do the 40-hour training class on biblical counseling material. I need to go pursue certification. I certainly am not qualified to do this. Let's just, just think through ways that we've already been equipped to do this work in the church. Think about the very big, the first two lessons that Scott did on the biblical transformation of man. Man as material and immaterial. Right At death, there's a separation of the material and the immaterial part. It is the, the immaterial part that is, that is e- eternal. It is the real you. Right, That's part of what you'll talk about as the theological foundation of biblical counseling. We talk about hear and build. I don't know if he's taught it this year, but Jacob Hantla has often taught a lesson on guarding our hearts. I've called this lesson soul care, but we could have just as easily called it heart care. The foundational principles for caring for our own hearts are the same as caring for the hearts and souls of others. Right? Disciplines two and three are about taking what we've already been learning about caring for our own hearts, pleasing, being pleasing to the Lord in our daily walk, and actually then stepping into the lives of others in our homes and the church and doing those things. When we've, been, when we've been equipping men to think about the duties in their homes and their hearts in ministry, we've actually been talking about and building a foundation to equip you to care for others in the church, to equip you to counsel with others in the church, because it's the same truths that will come into the count, our counseling conversations. I believe Eric's taught on the one another's already this year. And, and just remember the emphasis there on the one another's in caring for one another. Bearing one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. And it's easy for us to think of bearing one another's burdens as, hey, I'm going to go help the guy move. That's a burden. Uh, but that's specifically in a context of helping one another deal with sin. Uh, a brother who's trapped in sin and us coming alongside them not forgetting to look to our own selves, but also coming alongside them in a spirit of gentleness and helping them pursue conformity to Christ. We are to edify one another, build one one another up, to admonish one another. So whose job is soul care? I think this is uh, the first really true section of your notes. Whose job is soul care? Is it the professional therapist? Is it the certified biblical counselor? Is it the pastor? Does the pastor care for the spirit, the psychologist care for the soul, and the doctor for the body? Like, do we have some sort of understanding of man? No, man is two parts, material and immaterial. They're overlapping terms for the immaterial you, the soul, the spirit, the hidden person of the heart. All these refer to the same entity. And it's the church, not the psychologist, that cares for the soul. But who in the church? Can the believer in the church just leave this work to the pastors, to the certified counselors? So with that, I want to look at, before we answer that, what, what is soul care? What is biblical counseling? There's a definition from, Heath, uh, from Dale Johnson there on the bottom of your notes. Uh, what is soul care defined? I just want to read this definition. Biblical counseling is the personal discipleship ministry of God's people to others under the oversight of God's church, dependent upon the authority and sufficiency of God's word through the work of the Holy Spirit, 
Biblical counseling seeks to or reorient disordered desires, affections, thoughts, behaviors, and worship towards a God-centered anthropology in an effort to restore people to a right fellowship with God and others. This is accomplished by speaking the truth in love and applying scripture to the need of the moment, by comforting the suffering and calling sinners to repentance, thus working to make them mature as they abide in Jesus Christ. Just a couple definitions, part of this definition I want to look at. First, that bolded term, discipleship. Soul care is discipleship. It's going to read from Matthew 28, 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I command you. Right, this discipleship, one of the, the arms of discipleship is this aspect of teaching one another to keep the commands of Jesus. So, discipleship is the intentional, if I look at my own discipleship of the Lord, discipleship is the intentional pursuit of being come, becoming conformed to Christ, and so as we step into the lives of others, discipleship is me coming alongside those others in the church and helping them become conformed to Christ, to observe what Christ has commanded. So I'd ask you, do you have a relationship in this body where you are intentionally seeking to help another man understand Jesus' commands and help them obey them? If so, you're actually involved in the disciple-making process. You're involved in Great Commission work. You're engaging in biblical counseling, and that's the work of soul care. When we think of counseling, don't think of sterile, clinical, professionalized, formal sessions where one person says, I need counseling, they schedule an appointment. No, think of two believers having a conversation with an intentional focus to help the other one grow in conformity to Christ. And in the context of that conversation between two believers, they may actually both counsel each other. It's not uncommon in the, for someone in our church to actually seek biblical counseling. And they get in and they find themselves just sitting with somebody, having a conversation. They say, wow, this is really, really helpful. But this sort of just felt like a conversation. And that's right. Um, and sometimes it might look, a di look different, but if we've thought of counseling as this formal structure where one person has the answers, no, it is believers pointing one another to Christ to and helping one another to be obedient to him, to please him, to pursue Christ's likeness. Second part of the definition is that it's a function of the church, under the oversight of the church. Can God use conversations with someone outside of your local church for good? Of course he can. But the primary means of soul care that God has given is between the members of a church, your local church, Soul care is dependent upon the authority and sufficiency of God's word through the work of the Holy Spirit. It uses God's means for change. His word recognizes that it's dependent upon His Holy Spirit working. When we practice soul care, we're not simply sharing our opinions, our experiences, what's worked for us, but we're pointing others to what the truth that's found in God's word. 
Lastly, look at the very last phrase of the definition. Working to make them mature as they abide in Christ. We're aiming at mature believers. Uh, when it come, which comes through the path of them actually cultivating their relationship with Christ. If the goal of what our meeting together is to solve a problem, to help them in their current situation, and it bypasses their union with Christ, their relationship with Christ, their love for the Lord, their desire to please Him and honor Him in everything they do, we've missed it. What soul care is not, it's not an autonomous ministry apart from the local church. It's not reserved for the experts. It's not optional. It's not a separate entity apart from discipleship, right? Biblical counseling and soul care and discipleship are one and the same. So I'm going to just look at the mandate for soul care. And first, let's look at Paul's example of how he practiced soul care. And then we'll look at maybe the specific commands. Biblical counseling used to be referred more normally as neuthetic counseling, and just comes from the, the Greek word for counseling or admonishing. Um, and so where it appears in the verses below, I've underlined that word. What does the Bible say about counseling? Well, some of what the Bible has to say is embedded with the, within these terms for admonishing. And a lot of what it has to say is actually embedded in a lot of other terms, but... For, the, for these particular verses, I just underlined that word so you know where that's come from. That formed the basis of J. Adams' book, Competent to Counsel, um, from Romans 15, 14. But just look at, first at Colossians 1, 28-29. Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man completing Christ. For Paul, the goal was Christ's likeness, conformity to Christ, completeness in Christ, maturity in Christ. Acts 20, 31, Paul says, Therefore, be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. First, who is he talking to? He was specifically speaking to elders, and each one of those elders actually needed this sort of care. Pastors in the church are not just people who provide this sort of care. They're, the ones who, they're also ones who need it. And notice he also says, each one with tears. Right? Care for these men was not just what Paul did from the pulpit, just what Paul did with public proclamation. No, he actually admonished each one individually. This was individual personal ministry and it was also compassionate admonishment he, he knew their plight he knew where they were he, he sympathized with them this wasn't distant and clinical these were men he knew well look at first corinthians four fourteen, letter d i believe paul says i don't write these things to shame you but to admonish you as my beloved children these, these, were men, these were saints that were dear to him. He looked at them. His admonishment was familial. As my beloved children, counseling is what we do with those who are part of our family. 
we, we care for one another in the church, and that's why the local church is just such, is the, the primary place for it, because we are, we are a family. We care for one another, we bear one another's burdens, and we care for one another with the most important burden, which is sin. It's not clinical, it's not for those that have no relationship with the person that needs to be cared for, well, even though there might be benefit occasionally. Next, let's look at the, the mandate for pastors. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account. Okay, so pastors have, a, have an obligation. As they look over your souls, they have an obligation for caring for your soul. Sure. Ephesians 4. He gave some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Let's focus on that first. Pastors and teachers need to actually, in providing care for the church, they actually provide equipping for the church. Equipping, equipping for what? Well, equipping for, now let's look to the next section, for every believer. What is the mandate for soul care in the church for every believer? Look at B. Being equipped for the work of service. Pastors equip the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and full and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Believers, having been equipped by pastors to do the work of service to the building up of the body, to aim at, with a goal of aiming at the maturity of the church. Letter C, we see from Philippians, or Ephesians 4.15, the next verse is we speak the truth in love, the means and manner by which we do that, and the goal, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. It's just the purpose of soul care right there. We step in, we speak God's truth in love with the goal of all of us growing into and being complete in Christ. Maturity. Verse 16, Ephesians 4, 16. There we see the whole body being joined and held together by whatever joint supplies. We see believers connected to one another according to the properly measured working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Every member of the body of Christ must be engaged in the process of speaking truth to one another in love, aiming at and stepping in and caring for one another as we're connected to one another for the health of the whole church. This is not the work of the therapist, the certified counselor, the pastor only. This is the work of the church. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, letter G, says, Paul says to the Thessalonian church, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Right? The commander's plural. It was given to the brothers. This wasn't Paul writing to Titus or Timothy. No, this was given to the church, believers. Not one man, not just the pastors, but the church. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Letter H, Romans, look at Romans 15, 14. You can either turn there or look on your page. Remember, Paul is writing to Roman the Roman church, they were predominantly 
first century Roman believers coming out of a pagan background. There would have been some Jews in their midst as well. But they're relatively new in their faith in Christ. And this is actually at a time long before the supposed discovery of modern psychiatry, modern therapies. And yet God, through Paul, writes to them in verse 14, Romans 15, 14. But I myself am convinced about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, having been filled with all knowledge and being able also to admonish one another. Believer, if you know God's word, if you've been caring for your own heart and soul with God's word and it's had an impact on your life, then you've actually been equipped. You're able to carry out this work of admonishment of soul care in the church. And yeah, there are areas that are messy and that maybe you aren't as familiar with what God's word has to say. And you might be talking to somebody and I might need to go and, can can I get back to you? And then you go and we might feel that we should just ought to refer them to talk to somebody else, but can we take that as an opportunity to actually grow in our own knowledge of what God's word has to say? Let me actually seek help from others that can help me see what God's word has to say so I can actually step back into that conversation with that man in the church and point them to God's word. And how are we to do this? Who is to do this? Galatians 6, 1 through 2, letter I, I believe. Paul writes, Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each of you look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're to bear one another's burdens. And and this is for, who is this for? You who are spiritual. This isn't a, a special plane of the elite spiritual believers, but this is those who have actually been born of God who have the Holy Spirit. Who are demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. This is believers. This is the work of believers to step into one of those lives and care for them, care for men in the church with their burden, with their sin. Whose job is soul care? Whose job is biblical counseling? It belongs to the church. Both the pastors and every individual member who is spiritual, who has the Holy Spirit in whom the Holy Spirit is actually working to produce fruit. So if you leave with nothing else today, leave with this, that you as a believer are to care for the souls of others in this church. You've been given a lifelong ministry of discipleship, counseling, and soul care in the church to help others walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two is the purpose of soul care and you can read there, ultimately we're aiming at God's glory. We do everything for God's glory. Uh, we're aiming to see the image of God actually reflected in man as man is conformed to the image of Christ. We're after Christ's likeness. The goal of soul care is not digging into, sub- into the subconscious, getting proper behavior, creating self-esteem, or building a well-functioning family. I might be tempted in a conversation to 
all right, you, this person is in sin and there's sin in their home and maybe there's sin in the workplace and they're responding to an, to an employer who's bearing down on them unreasonably and is sinning against them. My, my goal isn't to solve their problem. They actually made, God's will might be that they remain in that circumstance for a long, long time. But I want to actually aim at helping them pursue Christ's likeness in that and how they respond to that situation. The goal is Christ's likeness. The goal is being helping that believer be pleasing to the Lord. Again, we can't change their circumstances, but how can they please the Lord in their circumstances? It is so tempting to want to run into, how do I help them extricate themselves from the situation? How do I help them speak to others in such a way that would maybe change their circumstances? And, and there's a place for being wise in what we say, but first and foremost, we want to help them pursue Christ-likeness and be pleasing to the Lord. So I want to just think through how we've actually been provisioned abundantly provisioned for this work. First of all, it's God's word. God's word is sufficient for this work. Look at number four on the list is sufficient. Sufficient. I'm going to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Because I think I only put verse 3 on there. I want to actually read verses 3 and 4. 2 Peter chapter 1 says... Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. If we're talking about caring for the souls of one another in this church, what are we talking about? We're talking about life and godliness. And everything we need for those topics, for those conversations... We've actually, we have everything that we need pertaining to that. Verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. God has provided in his word all that man needs to know concerning spiritual matters. And it's sufficient. We, 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 we have the truth. It's also authoritative. God's word can and does speak to every issue that is necessary for life and godliness. And, and when it speaks to any other issue, it's also authoritative. But especially as we think about what is wrong with man, what are man's true problems, what are the true remedies, God's word is sufficient. God's word speaks with accuracy, clarity. Let it be in, a, in the provision that God has given us is soul care is spirit driven. We don't, we don't labor on our own. God's spirit must be active and he's promised his spirit will work. The Holy Spirit is the agent of change in the believer. And so we should expect God to use the means that he has chosen to produce that change. Changing the heart with grace as God's word is made alive in him. 
we should expect that God would actually use, and the Holy Spirit would use, the men and women he has designated to produce or facilitate that change. Which is those in the church who bring God's word, dependent upon the Holy Spirit to work. And that also means if it's the Holy Spirit who is actually the agent of change, there's actually hope. There's hope for change with anybody who is actually in Christ. Letter H, soul care is Christ-focused. Its focus is on Christ. We, we admonish Him. Letter C, we, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we do not preach ourselves. We don't preach our own wisdom. We actually preach Jesus Christ as Lord. Our focus in, what, in this work is not our wisdom, but actually Christ. Christ as Lord, His truth. It is through Christ. It is 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring you to God. We are brought to God, not through behavior modification, dream analysis, vent, venting, getting in touch with our feelings, but actually through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through conformity to Him, that work that is carried out when we, are, when we sit under God's Word and the Holy Spirit is acting in the life of a believer. And number three, soul care is focused on Christ because Christ is the standard. Christ is the standard. He is that image. If we are being conformed to the image, we are being conformed to his image. Christ is a standard that we are to attain to and that we are to call one another to. I say Jesus Christ is the normal man. Um, secular systems often try to define behavior that is, that is normal and then address abnormal behavior. But the challenge for secular systems is that there is no true standard of what is normal. Every, everyone's got their own definition. But biblical Christianity is different. We actually have an objective basis for what it is to be normal when it comes to human experience. Jesus Christ is the true standard of what it means to be human. Think about it for a second. God created Adam perfect in the garden. Adam was normal. He was as designed until sin. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is normal. Man as man was intended. Yeah, he was both God and man, but in his humanity, he was humanity as intended. Dale Johnson says, Jesus was the true human. He lived as God designed man to live, worshiping God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength while loving his neighbor. And we aim to conformity to that image, to that standard. So we can recognize what is normal based upon seeing how Jesus lived his life. Secular culture has no way to define what normal is, but we can define normal humanity according to Jesus. Our aim is conformity to that. In our current state, we are abnormal. We, we need help. We need change. We, we have sin, and we are dependent upon God to bring that change. In number four, we are provisioned 
in this work of soul care that is Christ-focused because it is accompanied by Christ. Right, we read the Great Commission, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And what's the last phrase of that? And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When we engage in, this, in soul care in the church, we're not alone. Right, we have the powerful, perfect, sufficient word of God. We have the promise that it is actually the Holy Spirit who works through the word of God. And the comfort that Christ is actually with us in that work. And there's going to be some challenging conversations that we walk into when we're teaching one another to be obedient to what God's word has to say and Christ is actually in that work with us. So I want to just look at, like, as, we, as we think about stepping into this work of soul care, providing care to one another in the church, what are some considerations for us? Uh, number one, be involved. Build a Christ-focused relationship with another believer where you put yourself in a position to help them love God and love others and aim at maturity in Christ. I don't know about you. I don't know how many relationships over the years with men in the church that every time we get together, we talk about sports, we talk about this, we talk about things that we have a common bond in. We, we love these things and we talk about those things and yet, have we actually spent time aiming at helping one another pursue conformity to Christ? So be intentional in your relationships with men in the church, men in your small group. We are not to be aloof and distant like counselors. No, but these are people, these, we care for one another in our family. These are the people that we know. We want our lives to be knit together. But when we care for them, we're not pointing, we want to make sure that we point them to their primary relationship, which is with Jesus Christ. They should care more about what Christ thinks than what we think. We want to be compassionate before. We want to give hope. We want to be respectful. I'm just encouraged by what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is Paul the apostle who is currently writing scripture and he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. We don't care for one another. There's not this perfect standard. We must have attained to some standard of Christ's likeness, which we will never be like Christ in the way that we will be until we actually leave this world. There is not a perfect standard that we attain to before we actually have the ability to step into and care for others. And Paul saw himself still afflicted with sin. Yeah, we, we ought to be caring for our hearts. We ought to be pursuing Christ's likeness. The work of the Holy Spirit should be evident in our life. But Paul still saw himself as a sinner. And when we approach another person, do we, do we remember that we too are sinners? as we step in to help them with their sin. We want to be patient with all. We want to be honest in what we speak. First, we looked at Ephesians 4.15. The content of what we speak is truth. There's a manner to do that in, of love that is actually pursuing their interests above our own, pouring ourselves in for their benefit. We're to be prayerful as we approach and we step into others' lives in this way. 
But I want to kind of camp on G there is when we talk with someone who is, they're, they're dealing with hard things in their life. They're dealing with sin. Are we hopeful? Do, can we point them to what God's word has to say about their ability to actually overcome sin? Their ability to actually obey what God has said. Walk them through the promises of Romans 6. And our new relationship with sin as believers. If you, and if you don't know Romans 6, study that chapter. Listen to when we preach through this. Take them to passages like Philippians 1.6. I want to just look at Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do we believe that? If this, if this believer is in Christ, that God, that Christ is actually committed to their Christ-likeness. Change is hard, repentance is not easy. But let's, do we put the hope of the gospel in front of them? As we inspire hope, we should be reminding them that their problems aren't unusual. Right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. Right? There is no new sin. There are new manifestations of the same old sins. And God's word was sufficient when it was written to address all of those sins and those same sins are what's around now. They look different, but they're the same sin and God's word is sufficient. I want to encourage you to point them, point them to the gospel, point them to the good shepherd. The, point them to remember how Christ loves them. Look at Matthew or John 10, 25. Actually, I'll just read from verse 27. Jesus' commitment to his sheep. Listen to verse 27 of John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me and I give eternal life to them. They will never perish ever and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Take them to passages that demonstrate Christ's love for us and his commitment to his sheep. And as you talk, listen well. Don't assume that you know what they have to say. Listen. Listen to their situation. Proverbs 18, 13 says, He who responds with the word before he hears, it is a folly and a shame to him. Listen. Listen to help determine where they are weak, where they're faint-hearted, where they're unruly. Right? Sheep need different approaches. Um, you can look on prior years of build where Jacob and Mad and Scott have all taught on 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Listen, what, where is this believer? What, how is this believer's disposition in terms of are they unruly, are they weak? What sort of care might be needed for them? Listen to them well and ask questions to help discern the difference between the presenting problem and the deeper-rooted problem. Not everyone said, knows exactly. They haven't always pinpointed what the problem is when they come to you for help. Hey, I keep saying really unkind things to my wife, and I want to help them. Hey, have you just thought about counting to three before you say something? That might be helpful in the short term. 
I got really angry. I need to focus on just not responding. That might be helpful in the short, short term, but what is the reason that you responded in anger to begin with? What's going on at the heart level that needs to be drawn out, that needs to be cared for with God's word? I want to just encourage you as we, as we look, as we care for one another, to use and to think in biblical categories. Help people think in biblical categories so that, so that when they read God's word on their own, they recognize that what they're, they're struggling with is actually sin. Right? We, we're not addressing frustration or bulimia or overeating or personality type. What we want, we're actually addressing anger and selfishness and gluttony and love of self, not a personality type. Right? We want to get help them ask questions, open up scripture to help them think through what's at the heart of this. What are unbiblical beliefs that are driving this? What are, the, what are the things, these things that have become functional gods that I'm actually worshiping? Right, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Are they, are they pursuing comfort, pleasure, satisfaction, possessions? Are they pursuing respect and acceptance and recognition? Is that what's driving this behavior? I, in, a, in my own small group, there's probably no passage that comes up more often as we care for men in our small group, then James 4. James 4, 1 through 3. Right, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Right, it's the desires, those things that drive us, those things that were more important to us in that moment than pleasing God. So ask one another, in that moment, what were you willing to sin to get? What was so important to you that you wanted so much that was such an idol that you were willing to sin to get it or maybe you were willing to sin to protect it when you sinned against that person what desire was driving that so that when that person became an obstacle or a threat to that desire you lashed out in anger ask questions well what are what are the heart ruling desires and idolatries that are driving that Put God's word in front of them. The great commission for the church is making disciples. Right? And that includes evangelism to the unbelieving world. It, it's instruction and caring for the souls also of those believers that are in the church. It's not just the pastors that do that, but each and every one of us, no matter what ministry we're part of, so my encouragement to you is labor to be a properly functioning part of this body. For the benefit of the whole body, not confident in yourself, but in God's word. And one of the best places to do that at this church is actually in a small group. If you're not in one, join one. If you're in one and it's been more difficult, your priority hasn't been to be there, rearrange Rearrange your schedule. Make it your priority because that's such a great place for you to be able to intentionally pursue caring for one another in this way, practicing soul care in the church. And on your homework, I've got a couple questions for you. And I just encourage you to think through, how do I put this lesson into practice where I'm at? 
question number two on your homework, really just challenge you to think through, what are some areas that I need to grow in in serving the spiritual needs of those maybe in my area of influence? But question seven is a little more specific. Think about your small group. If you're not in a small group, think about your build discussion group. What are the recurring themes that come up over and over again in your circles, in your small group? If, if it's like my small group, if we, go, if, we, if we were to come and look at the last three months of uh, kind of our kind of core questions, we talk about what's going on in our lives, there's probably three or four issues that just come up every week. Maybe not for every man. Consider some practical ways for you to commit yourself to be better equipped to step into those specific issues where you can more effectively care for the souls of those that are in your, in your small group. That might mean you need to study up on some, some passages, maybe memorize some passages. You might need to read a book that would help you think through that topic biblically. But the point of today's lesson is to provide biblical motivation for taking what you've learned and build and recognize that Christ has commissioned you to take, to, to step into the church and care for one another with these same truths. So that's my prayer for you. Um, we love biblical counseling in this church. We've got a whole 40-hour training session to help people think through these things, but man, we have been well-equipped already. I'm so thankful for this ministry that has just well-equipped us to think about what's going on at the heart level when we sin. And so don't stop at what you hear each and every week about how you're to be caring for your own heart. But think through how, how do I actually begin to step into and commit myself to intentionally pursuing relationships with men in this church to do these same things that we talk about and build in the lives of others and to help them. Um, biblical counseling ought not be this formal, sterile, clinical thing that's reserved for the, the elite of the church, the pastors of the church, but it's actually soul care is the responsibility of each and every one of us. And I just would, as, as you work on your homework, just be thinking through, what are some ways that I need to grow in how I care for those in my group? What are some ways that I need to change my relationships with certain men that have become, only, become focused only about the things that we share in common of in the world, the, the team that we love, the, the games that we enjoy, uh, the, the activities that we like to perform. But how do I be more intentional in those conversations? Because we're aiming at, with every member, conformity to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you that you have ordained to use supernatural means, your word, your spirit, in actually changing believers changing dead sinners and giving them new life. You are committed to making each and every believer like your son. And yet you've also ordained in your church the connection between one another and believers to be part of that process as we step into one another's lives and care for one another. Lord, help us just to be intentional in our pursuit of one another with these same truths as we practice caring for the souls of those in this church. In your name we pray. Amen.